Hi! Welcome to the CGB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, here from Lightning Lou. Yes, the 96-year-old Winnipegger who's still running, setting records. This past weekend, he did just that, and he talked to me today. Also, we hear from Leah Hextall, who breaks down the weekend in the NHL, not just the draft, but the moves and what they could mean for the Winnipeg Jets. Plus, a quick look at week two in the CFL on the podcast. This past weekend at the Manitoba Age Class Championships, Lou Billenkoff nailed and surpassed his goal running in the 50-meter dash. He was trying to beat the best time posted in 2018, and he did. Have I mentioned that Lou is 96? Yes, Lou's 96 years old, and he joins me now on the CGB Sports Show. Congratulations, Lou. How does it feel to set a record? Well, it's not quite exactly a world record. I don't know. I don't have enough information to say that it's a world record. It's uh, what I was trying to do was to beat the best time last year, which is a little bit different. And last year, the fastest runner in the world uh, ran 50 meters in 16.81 seconds, and I beat that this year. So that was my objective. So you beat your goal. So what time did you do it in? Uh, 15.67. I said, pardon me, 15.68 seconds. So you crushed so I, it. I beat the time by over a minute, over a second. Well, that's pretty good. So what was your training routine like leading up to this record-setting attempt or record-breaking attempt? Well, I always go to the refit center three times a week. I go Monday, Wednesday, and Friday afternoon. And each time I go there, I lately I've been running 60 meters. And uh, that has been my training. I also do other things while I'm there, uh, athletics. And uh, I enjoy being there. Do you have like a, a, a community that you run with? Or is it just you? <laughs> just me. What was it that got you into running in the first place? Well, I always knew that I could run throughout my life because whenever... I needed to do any running. I could tell that I was pretty swift, but I didn't do anything with it. I never did anything formal, like participate in a race or anything like that. But when I was 89 years old, I had a heart attack, and my doctor recommended that I start doing some exercise at the refit center, which I did. And while I was there walking track, I thought I would do a little bit of running, which is I already knew I enjoyed. I did that. My son, Errol, said, you've got to do something with that because he looked up some of the figures, which I had not done, and he saw that I was running at a rate that was good for competition. So he entered me in a running competition at the University of Manitoba, and that was five years ago, and uh, I did pretty well at that time. So that's how I got started. And do you uh, run every day? How often a week do you do this? 
Just the three times that I'm at the refit. Okay. What else do you do to pass the time? <laughs> uh, nothing athletic. <laughs> I, uh, I do a lot of yard work, uh, which I enjoy, uh, but no, no other athletics. Okay. What is it about the age class championships that kind of gives you a thrill? Well, when I first started, I was in the uh, class, age class M94, which is from 94 years old to 95 years old. And now since I turned 95 and now I'm 96, I'm in the M95 class. And uh, I find that my performance is in the top range worldwide. So it's quite a thrill. Do you get questions from people at the Refit Center when you're out running because you are probably one of the older people there? Oh, definitely I do. Just about everybody there who comes at the time of day that I do knows me. And uh, I've made a lot of friends and we often talk about my running, yes. What's the secret to success at 96? To be lucky to be born in good health. And I guess when you have a heart attack at 89, it probably gives you a, a different perspective on where you are, right? Well, yes, I uh, feel very lucky that things have turned out the way they have, and uh, I'm just having a lot of fun. How important is uh, your family in cheering you on? Oh, very much so. It's uh, caused a lot of enjoyment for everybody that uh, I know, not only family but friends. Everybody participates in the pleasure of it. You still live at home? Oh, yes. Is your wife with you? Yes, she is. How long have you been married? 68 years. Wow. Does she ever run with you? No, she's not in that great a shape. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so around the house, then, you do yard work. What uh, What else do you read? What do you do? I enjoy being on the computer. I have a lot of people I correspond with, not only in Winnipeg, but in different parts of the world. And uh, I follow a lot of things that are going on in the world, like politics and certain things that I take interest in. That's what I do. What's more impressive, a 96-year-old using the computer or a 96-year-old breaking records running? Well, the running part is the biggest thrill, of course. What's your, uh, I guess, your eating regimen as you train for the sprint? I don't eat anything specially, but I do have to watch that I don't eat too much because later eating is a very important thing before running. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite meal? Favorite meal? Uh, well, I don't know. I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> There's no favorite. Too many options. Okay. Anything else you want to add? No, I don't think so. I uh, have made a lot of great friends at the Refit Center and, and other places which has given me a lot of pleasure as well. And uh, that, that's, and oh, my coach, Sheldon Reynolds. I have to tell you about him. Uh, when I was leading up to my participation a year ago, uh, Sheldon Reynolds at the uh, Sports Manitoba 
offered to give me some coaching, which he did. And I very much appreciate what he did for me because he's a great guy. Thank you. Lou, well, I appreciate your time today. Congratulations again on your success and uh, best of luck going forward. Thank you very much. So we bring in our hockey expert, Leah Hexall. Le- Leah, just uh, your overall recount of the weekend. Was it everything you hoped it would be with the trades and everything like that? Well, it was, but that took a little bit of a backseat after the first round. I mean, I was expecting more action in that first round. I thought that we would see some of those first-round picks being dealt in order to make some more acquisitions. I was actually kind of surprised that there wasn't more activity at the draft, but the activity that they did give us the next day, the trades that you just mentioned, the Subban deal, obviously, I would say being the highlight of it, that's a big name to be moved on draft day. So really, we got what we were looking for, but I actually thought we might have seen a bit more, which makes me wonder, because as we know, you just mentioned the cap. The cap news release came out from the NHLPA and the NHL on Saturday, and I wonder if the GMs, they likely already knew what it was going to be and that it was going to be lower than projected, and perhaps before making deals, they wanted to go back and see their capologists because Everyone has them. There are guys on the payroll that actually teams on the payroll that look at the contracts, figure out how to maneuver things in order to make it work. So I wonder with the cap coming in a little bit lower than expected, if that made a difference in the trade market at the draft this year. Well, that was the dialogue Friday night was people saying online, oh, they're not making moves because the cap isn't finalized yet. And people saying, oh, why haven't they done this yet? How is it going to last in a Saturday? But, I mean, the general managers know within 500 k what it's going to be. How Can that really impact why there wasn't any movement Friday? Well, I think, though, the fact, though, that it was supposed to be or was projected to be by the commissioner in December, $83 million, it goes down to $81.5. I know people look at that and they think, well, that's only $1.5 million. It doesn't seem like a lot of money, but for some teams – especially cap crunch teams, that's a roster player, if you think about it. So these are really important pieces to the puzzle that maybe you were looking to add into a deal that aren't your big superstars, but you were willing to depart with them, perhaps if the cap was going to be lower or higher. And then suddenly, you know what, I don't want to throw that guy into the deal or else maybe somebody doesn't want him anymore. So it can make a difference, even though it's not a huge amount. For teams that are in cap crunch, that $1.5 million, like the Winnipeg Jets, that's a big deal. So let's get to the Jets. Any of the movement this weekend and any of the signings that we've seen so far, does it negatively impact what the Jets will be able to do heading into the next couple weeks? You know, I think the fact, I, I don't really look at the weekend, Christian, but I look at that Kevin Hayes signing. And I look at the market for Jacob Truba and I did a little bit of background after the Truba trade this draft weekend, because more and more people are coming into town as the Jets kick off their development camp today with physicals. And from what I've been told, the Truba deal, that was the best they were going to get. And so when I hear that, I feel like, so what's the market out there? What is actually going on here? And the biggest star of the show right now that you can get as a team is cap space. You look at the deal with Marlowe going to Carolina to be bought out. And then you hear that, oh, and he's trying to get back to San Jose. And I just sit there and go, how is he going to be able to do that? I mean, look what San Jose's cap is. And they have to sign Pavelski and they just signed Carlson to a major deal. You know, and it just makes my head spin. But when I see that Kevin Hayes was severely overpaid 
score longer term than they should have given him. And then I see the fact that Jacob Truba goes for as little as he did. I'm sitting there wondering, what is someone like Ben Chirot or Tyler Myers really going to get on that open market now with the cap being where it is? There's a part of me that's like, okay, the Kevin Hayes deal. Teams with cap space, they're willing to overpay. And then there's a part of me that goes, maybe the Jets might get lucky. Maybe this free agency won't be this whirlwind of spending. So I'm at a point now where I don't know if it was negative or positive this weekend because it seems to be at two different spectrums. You know, one end is one thing and the other end is another. And I don't know where we're going to go with this. And that's what I think makes July 1st so interesting this year. And we have the the talks going on now where teams can meet with free agents, the talking period. And I'm seeing rumors about Tyler Myers and what he might be asking for. And I've seen reports that $6 million might be a little low, could be a seven-year contract in the neighborhood of $8 million per season. That seems insane, doesn't it? Well, to me it does, and that's not in offense to Tyler Myers, but he's he's 29 years of age. So just in the age category, if you're going to sign him to seven years, think of where he's going to be at that time. He's going to be past his mid-30s, and we all know that just father time is not kind in the world of sports. But when you look at his old deal, the deal that he's coming off of, it was $38.5 million over seven years. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, there's no way he's going to get that much term or that much money. But from what I'm hearing, he is looking for a six-year deal. Mm. And to me, that seems crazy. Like, I, I'm sorry. If I'm a general manager and I've watched Tyler Myers play over the last few years, it's not that he's a bad defenseman, but it's not that he's an elite defenseman. He's right in the middle of the pack. So it all depends on what you really need. And, you know, but then you think, okay, so Eric Carlson, eight years, AAV of $11 million. So if Myers is, say, worth 40% of the player that Carlson is, then, you know, it's not crazy to think he could get a five-year deal. So it's really, I mean, I honestly, I wish I could tell you if it was crazy, but I don't really know what the temperature is for the market for a defenseman. Because when I see Truba being traded for basically a first-round pick. And, you know, Neil Pionk, I've heard more and more from the Jets camp that this kid, the scouts are very high on him. So who knows what he might turn into. But on paper right now, that does not look like a good deal for the Winnipeg Jets. But when you see that happen, and then you think that Tyler Myers could go out and get term of six years, it just doesn't make sense to me in this moment. Same age as Eric Carlson, by the way. And, I mean, when you hear these numbers, you're – looking at the Jets situation and say, all right, we're moving on from him, no doubt. I I would definitely think so. I don't think there's any way that, you know, even if they wanted to, they can't bring him back. I mean, especially now, again, like I said, the cap going down to 81.5, and it's not just this year, Christian. It's the in my Hexon hockey's about this tomorrow. The cap isn't just going to be low this year. It looks like it's going to stay low for the next couple of years. Now, a lot depends on whether or not the NHLPA opens up the collective bargaining agreement like they can in the fall of 2020. If they can do that and open things up and they want to renegotiate then, that we don't know what's going to happen there. Hopefully that won't be the case and the CBA will stay in place until 2022 like it was supposed to. But it sounds to me like the TV rights deal in the U.S. is coming up. 
That's hockey-related revenue. That connects to the salary cap. They need to figure that out in the United States to see what they have coming in. And there's other things in play. And so when you're looking to sign a player right now, you can't just be looking at this year because your cap is not going to have a big increase next year and likely the year after that. And a lot of GMs and teams are planning for this two- to three-year period of the cap not really moving. So that's the importance of this year's cap not going to 83. It indicates that with escrow and everything else that's going on, that this cap is likely going to stay in check. But I will say, since the lockout where we lost the entire season back in 2004 and 2005, the cap has gone up $40 million in that time. That's a lot of money. Can you imagine today's talent, today's contracts with a $40 million salary cap? It's impossible. Well, and you have to think about it too, is that I think this is a really good point that people have to understand that unless I guess it's Tampa Bay or Vegas where your taxes don't add up the way they do anywhere else. And really that does make a difference for these players and their salaries. Cause think about how much tax gets taken off your paycheck. Mm-hmm. So it does make a difference for athletes. But other than that, these players like the Patrick Lines and the Kyle Connors, they're not going to be the Mark Shifley's of the world that took that hometown discount. They're not going to be the Blake Wheelers mm-hmm. that took that hometown discount. They are looking to make their money. And that is really something I feel. And it's a cultural thing from these younger players. So I don't think you're going to see Matt Duchesne sit there and go, well, but I really like it in Columbus. He's going to go where it sings, where he feels like the money is good. And these young players like Patrick Line and Kyle Connor, um, you know, it doesn't make them bad people. It's just not the day and age of the hometown discount because you got to make your money when you can. And it's just not the way they work. And that's their right to do that. Final question. Absolutely. How about the job ratios done in New Jersey? Everybody's going to New Jersey. I mean, come on now. I mean, first of all, how exciting is it for the Devils to get Jack Hughes? I mean, I haven't seen, you know, him play in person, but, you know, we all know the World Wide Web and we get to see a lot of him on the TV. And this is a this is a young man who's, uh, I think, got a ton of talent and is only going to get better. And then he pulls off the Subban deal. And, I mean, no matter what you think about P.K. Subban, I mean, he can play your power play. This is more and more a power play league. Yes, he's had a little bit of issues with his back and injury over the last couple of years, but he's still putting up great numbers. And, you know, every time he goes somewhere, it rejuvenates that market because of the personality he has. And that's important when you're trying to put fans in the stands, which New Jersey needs. So they've got Hughes, they've got Subban. I think those tickets are going to be flying off the shelves in New Jersey. And I think he's doing a great job as they revitalize it. And we'll see what uh, they can do next season. Obviously helps to win the draft lottery two out of three years, but you know, it does. It does. But you know what? Sometimes it doesn't look at Edmonton. Mm, That's true. That's true. (laughs) And I got Taylor Hall from Edmonton. All right, Leah, appreciate it. So why don't we just get to the week two brief CFL recap? Rough Riders visiting Ottawa, Saskatchewan with Cody Fajardo at quarterback. The Red Blacks coming off that stunning win in Calgary. Ottawa has a 9-7 lead heading into the second, where it was absolute chaos. 39 combined points between the two clubs. What? Riders field goal. Two straight Ottawa touchdown passes from Dom Davis. Riders touchdown. Two Ottawa field goals. And then a 44-yard pass on the last play. The Riders are within seven at the break. Things did slow down in the third. Kickers did all the scoring. 
But Ottawa never trailed. Home team up 41-27 in the fourth. Riders get a touchdown, but they can make a stop. Ottawa winds the clock, a field goal, and a late Riders TD not enough. 44-41 final. Take a breath. And let's head to Edmonton. The return of Mike Riley and early on the Lions had the upper hand. A Riley TD pass and three field goals. The visitors are up 17-3. But then the Eskimos still somehow led at the half. 17 unanswered points, including two Trevor Harris TD passes. Edmonton up three, and then the defense just teed off on Riley. Not one, not two, not three, but seven sacks of the BC pivot. BC with just six second half points. Riley finished with 149 yards passing. That's it. Eskimos 2-0, Lions 0-2. And to Toronto, where the Argos hosted the Ticats in the Boatman's home opener. How did it go for the double blue? Well, <laughs> it was 3-3 after one, and then... If you have kids in the room, maybe cover their ears because this gets graphic. Ticats field goal. Touchdown. Touchdown. No, Argos got a field goal. Ticats touchdown. And a touchdown. And a touchdown. And then a missed field goal touchdown. And then a touchdown. And a field goal. And oh, Argos got a TD and a pick six as time expires. 64 to 14? Have you no shame, Toronto? What is that? And by the way, Mike Riley has shaved his beard because that is what's wrong with the Lions offense. Tune into the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell, or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I think you're out of luck, but Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?